What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Alex Pack is a managing partner at Dragonfly Capital Partners, an asset management firm focused on investing in and supporting the most promising opportunities in the crypto asset class. In this conversation, we discussed his views of the Asian crypto markets, why the Dragonfly team is focused on investing in infrastructure, how he sees certain market narratives playing out, whether ETH is money, and where Alex will be focused on investing in the coming three to five years. I found Alex to be incredibly entertaining and informative, so I highly suggest watching this episode. Also though, let's talk about the advertisers who made this episode possible before we get into it. The first is BlockFi. You guys know I'm a huge believer in what they're doing. I'm a user and an investor. They basically have three products today. They will give you a US dollar loan against your crypto. They will also pay you interest on your crypto deposits. And then they have a cryptocurrency exchange where you can buy and sell crypto. BlockFi recently announced to users that they're going to launch a credit card this year that pays rewards in Bitcoin rather than cash or loyalty points as well. So Anything that you want to do with your crypto, BlockFi can help you. They basically are rebuilding many of the financial services or wealth management services that are available in the legacy world, but all around the new digital assets. So head on over to BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP and check them out. I'm a huge fan, investor, and user. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Now, the second sponsor is Unstoppable Domains. These guys are doing really incredible work. The decentralized world is coming. We already know that. Whether you want censorship resistance or you just want the ability to access information that you otherwise couldn't, Unstoppable Domains is working to make that possible. They basically have two core things that you can do. The first, you can go get a domain name. So you can go buy a .crypto domain from unstoppabledomains.com and you can use that to set up a website or use it as a wallet address to have people pay you. So .crypto domains, kind of think of that as um, the domain system for a decentralized uh, web. Unstoppabledomains.com is where you can buy those. The other thing they've built is they've built a browser to help people access the decentralized web. You no longer have to be super technical to be able to do it. You can go to unstoppabledomains.com slash browser. Again, unstoppabledomains.com slash browser. And you can start using it today. It's kind of a portal into this decentralized world that's super cool, very user-friendly, and dumb easy to use. So go check them out. BlockFi.com slash POMP and UnstoppableDomains.com slash browser. Now let's get into the episode with Alex. I really enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by POMP or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by POMP as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I'm here with Alex. Uh, Thanks so much for coming to do this, man. Thank you. Real pleasure. You've got a real unique view of the world, I think, because you spend uh, about half the time uh, looking at U.S.-based uh, companies and then the other half the time looking in Asia and China specifically. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, yeah, big world. Let's start with uh, just your background. Kind of what, what did you do before you were investing in, uh, in crypto? Yeah, so I, um, I'm the managing and founding partner of Dragonfly Capital. We're a uh, global crypto venture firm. I'm based in San Francisco. My uh, partners are based in Beijing. And we try to cover the world. 
Uh, so before that, I, I've been a VC for about five or six years. I got started at a fintech fund in Hong Kong around 2014. Uh, before that, I was actually a college professor in Hong Kong. Uh, and basically, I uh, this was early days for crypto. And Hong Kong has a very uh, sleepy startup ecosystem. But at the time, quite a huge Bitcoin, eco uh, you know, wasn't crypto then, it was just Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, a lot of like libertarians and finance people like that in, in Hong Kong. So I, I sort of got into the ecosystem there and I became the crypto guy. And then I moved to Angelus, which is where we first uh, met each other, actually. And I was a partner there. Mm. Um, and then I joined Bain Capital Ventures, which is the venture arm of the 100 billion, you know, uh, AUM asset management firm. Uh, and I did a lot of seed investing and uh, uh, specifically sort of kickstarted their crypto investing program. And left that two years ago, started Dragonfly, and we've been rock and rolling ever since. Awesome. And then what's the mandate with uh, Dragonfly? Yeah, we're a generalist crypto fund. I think it's, uh, it's, it's tough. A lot of our LPs, they just want sort of single exposure to crypto, right? And they don't know whether it's tokens, whether it's equity, and even for us, whether it's US-based or Asia-based, because our main thesis really with our fund is that a crypto, very unique amongst all asset classes and even all tech trends is truly global from day one. Mm -hmm. uh, so we sort of give them that diversified exposure around the world. Uh, maybe about half of our investments end up being in tokens. Could be liquid, it could be illiquid, things like SaaS. Uh, we do a ton of DeFi protocols and smart contract platforms and money protocols. And then about half of the investments are in infrastructure, venture, very traditional venture investments. Uh, many of those tend to be in Asia, in fact. Got it. And so maybe give us uh, a breakdown of like, what are some of those companies that you've actually invested in? And then I want to get into uh, kind of um, a, a spirited debate about DeFi, Ethos money, et cetera. Totally. I, uh, I love talking to more. Do you call yourself a Bitcoin maximalist at this not point? At all. Really? Not at all. Not okay. At all. Not at all. Okay, great. This will be good then. Um, uh, yeah. So some of our, some of our sort of bigger uh, investments are, were, uh, we led MakerDAO's last round which is the largest DeFi project and the largest decentralized stablecoin. Um, and we specifically help them with their go-to-market in Asia. Uh, and then we've invested in a whole bunch of other DeFi protocols like Compound Finance, uh, DYDX, these are like money markets and decentralized derivative exchanges. Uh, we're investors in Ethereum and Bitcoin too, of course, uh, as well as on the infrastructure side, we're in deals like uh, a lot of U.S. infrastructure like Arisex and Tagomi and Anchorage. And a lot of their sort of equivalents in Asia, uh, like a brokerage called Amber AI, which is growing like crazy. Um, whole, whole, lot of, whole lot of sort of exchanges, just the entire uh, uh, sort of market infrastructure stack that's growing in Asia. And, and why the focus on Asia or kind of give us an understanding of like what's actually going on there for the U.S.-based investor or Western world? Like what do we not understand or what should we understand about that market? Yeah, so one of the biggest misconceptions about crypto is that it's happening in the U.S., uh, to any extent, really, um, which is totally different. I, I understand why, because it's totally different from the internet uh, and even biotech and SaaS. Uh, basically, if you're an internet company, you don't think about China, you don't think about Asia at all, because the U.S. market is so large, you have so many users here um, that you really don't have to have a China strategy until you're at a 10 billion plus, you know, market cap. There's there's plenty of room to grow. In crypto, that's not true. Um, Crypto, and this actually is sort of my origin story. When I was in the U.S., I really didn't like Bitcoin. I'm not sort of like a anti-Fed guy. I think uh, the state, like the U.S. dollar, is one of the greatest 
sort of technological and institutional inventions of all time. It creates stability and, and so forth. Um, and so compared to that, compared to sort of the U.S. financial system, Bitcoin and the crypto financial system is not very great. So if you're an American, really the main use case of crypto uh, today is just sort of like the Robin Hood use case. It's just speculation. Um, whereas, uh, whereas, you know, when I, when I went to Asia and was a fintech investor, I saw that these were real users of crypto that desperately need it. Um, the financial system is completely uh, significantly lacking compared to, to sort of the Western financial system. There's, um, you know, the largest groups of underbanked and unbanked are in Asia, you know, China and India. Um, but even people like middle class people and so forth and people that have smartphones, uh, there's no credit system. It's very hard if you're an SMB to get credit. It's very hard for individuals to get credit. Um, of course, all of these currencies, they're often under capital controls and they're much more volatile than the U.S. dollar. So crypto is a great use case for them. And this is empirically true, too. If you look, um, we, uh, we pulled the numbers. Basically, there's 16 crypto unicorns, uh, like venture and companies, and 12 of them are based in Asia. So 75% of all the crypto unicorns are in Asia. And I mean, they have like 5 billion plus revenues, multi-billion dollars in profits all coming from this region. It's crazy how large it is. Um, is this institutions? Is this retail? Like, where is that actually coming from? That right? I, I hear you on, hey, the people need this, but those numbers are just so large. Can it be all retail? I think it's primarily retail. Generally, in in China, um, institu institutions as a concept of invest as a class of investor are more of a Western phenomenon uh, because you kind of have to, it's sort of from endowments, it's from like hundred plus year, like families make their money in, you know, the Gilded Age and they pass it on and, it, and there's institutions. Um, whereas in China and, and most of Asia, the money is more recent. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, like, you know, most institutional money is just family offices, is just like public companies that are run by specific families. But yet yeah, generally most of the activity in crypto in, in Asia is retail. Yeah, it's I mean, there's grannies, you know, that are buying EOS and are buying Bitcoin. Um, there is actually a significant amount of the mining industry is probably institutions because it's a little harder to buy significant amounts of crypto, like 10 million plus amounts of Bitcoin in, in most Asian countries and in the US. So, you know, one reason why the hash rate is so large in China, it's like 65 percent of the entire hash rate um, is in China. It's actually not because energy costs are so low. It's because it's a way for institutions to get really significant amounts of coin um, and sort of virgin coins uh, in one go. Got it. And so as you guys have started to invest, the teams that you're backing uh, in the Asian market, are these um, kind of teams that are native to the Asian market? Do you see teams from other parts of the world kind of moving there to uh, service this need? Kind of talk to me about um, the, the teams and, and uh, the, what you found as you've started to invest more and more in the region. Yeah, usually it's um, it's people who at least grew up in these countries. It's very, very, I mean, look at Uber or Facebook. It's very, very hard for uh, Westerners to penetrate uh, China, less so India, but India is actually just, they just um, had a major Supreme Court ruling in India just yesterday. So it was sort of banned before that. Um, but uh, the other trend that's driving a lot of innovation to Asia is uh, regulatory flexibility. The countries there are just much more flexible with what you can do with crypto. They sort of take a wait and see approach and sandbox approach as opposed to U.S. regulators. 
And um, so what we've been seeing, the main trend we've been seeing is that, you know, typically everyone flocks to Silicon Valley. Like YC is like the new American dream. Like, you know, over half of the YC class is international and it's people from India and China and Singapore and so forth. And uh, that's that's stopped happening in crypto, really. So what we're seeing now is like it used to be that everyone, everyone, uh, everyone in tech, like wants to do a tech startup would immigrate to the U.S., now they're just sort of staying home or they're immigrating to Asia instead. I think maybe if the regulatory disparity continues to grow, we will start to see an actual migration of Americans moving to uh, like Singapore, Hong Kong. That, that, would be, that would be pretty unprecedented, to be honest. But we'll see. Yeah. And, and so then walk me through um, kind of you guys have a big focus on DeFi. Um, where like what's the thesis there and, and kind of why are you guys so focused on that specific part of crypto? Yeah, I think DeFi is a great encapsulation of I mean it's a great example of why of this story of like why so much of the adoption is in Asia. Broadly, I think um, sort of my thesis on on crypto is that the very early use case, it's a it's a you know it's a protocol for value. And the very simplest uh, like least computationally heavy form of value is just money, mm-hmm. like Bitcoin, right? It's just a uh, like a, a line in a database. Very simple. You don't need massive scalability uh, to make it happen. And then uh, and then the other major applications of like Internet of Value is the entire financial system. So once you have money, you can make programmable money, and you can make sort of smart contract platforms. And once you have smart contract platforms, you can uh, do all sorts of things with value. You can do ICOs, which is sort of like fundraising, and you can do uh, decentralized lending, which is like MakerDAO, and you can do decentralized lending that collateral, you could use assets as collateral to basically create an entire financial ecosystem. Because, you know, today, the major actually innovation of the like financial innovation of the 19th and 18th century, which sort of catalyzed the Industrial Revolution, was this switch to basically turning property into capital. So before, uh, in like the 15th century, if you owned a house, you couldn't do anything with that house. It was just idle capital just sitting there. And then you had property systems, you had municipal record keeping, you had this banking industry that allowed you to mortgage your house. And so it was easier to buy a house and you could take, you know, le- take loans on it and you could use that to start a business or whatever you like. Um, and so capital that's just sitting idle under your bed, very little of the money in the world is just sitting idle. Most of it has to be used to create a financial system of derivatives and lending that's, you know, 100 to 1,000 times larger than the actual base money supply or gold, you know, whatever, uh, collateral supply. Um, and so I think that's what's happening uh, with DeFi. DeFi is basically that happening in a fully decentralized way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have decentralized lending and it has all the, well, most of the benefits. It's, you know, still early, but it has most of the benefits of cryptocurrencies, which is, you know, permissionless, censorship resistant, things like that. Anyone around the world can use it, global from day one. Um, And that's big. That's big. Again, it's not big for Americans because pretty much everyone in America can just get a credit card. And it's probably too easy, to be honest, to get like a personal loan in America, Mm -hmm. but very hard in the rest of the world. Um, So so the ability to just instantly, without knowing who you are, get a loan uh, with putting in ETH as collateral today is really powerful in many parts of the world. And so if we are able to onboard all of these, you know, quote unquote, new users to a financial system, it happens to be this new financial system. To me, the most interesting part is 
the tertiary effects of that, right? If all of a sudden now people have access to credit, they have access to all sorts of different financial services that have previously been available in the developed world, uh, but not in many other regions, um, you can really kind of uh, propel forward human production and, and human development to some degree. Um, and I just don't think we've seen anything like this before at this scale this quickly. Do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's remarkable. You can read a book of of financial history over the last 5,000 years and you can trace like every thousand years was a major fi major financial innovation. Like, you know, 4,000 years ago, we invented debt and then uh, we invented gold and other precious, I mean, not invented, but you know, we, mm. we sort of did. We invented gold as a precious metal that became uh, like a financial asset. And then we invented sort of a payment system that is on top of gold. And then in the 15th century, we invest, invented uh, like joint stock corporations and a way to, you know, sort of organize organizations and fundraise for them. And then we had stock exchanges and then we had massive derivatives markets. And this, it takes 4,000 years. And, uh, and in crypto, we've literally built that in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just like this hyper fast growth of a totally parallel, decentralized at this point, financial stack. It's yeah. Th technology is great. I mean, the leverage afforded to everything being open source, everything being, you know, um, open APIs and so forth in crypto, the fact that it's all software leads to just tremendously fast innovation. And I think we're getting to the point in a few years where it's going to be totally new. You know, right now we're like rebuilding existing institutions. MakerDAO is kind of like a decentralized central bank in one way. In another way, it's kind of like a decentralized pawn shop. But, you know, the most exciting things in, uh, in a new technology innovation are when you get like totally new use cases that are not even sort of mirror images of, of uh, what's, you know, it's when you get cars instead of just horse and buggies or whatever that are a little, fa that are a little faster, you know? Yeah. Um, let's go right at it. ETH is money. This is a, uh, a meme that has um, become very popular, uh, especially in the Ethereum DeFi community. Um, and really the way that I've analyze this or, or kind of uh you know evaluated it is basically what eth is money is saying is eth is good money right because if we don't say eth is good money then i could say rocks are money you know cheetos are money etc but eth is good money is really going at this idea of kind of what you talked about like collateral right and in these DeFi systems uh we're seeing a th uh, ether specifically being used for certain uh mechanisms um or, or uh you know products and features etc let's just start with agree or disagree eth is money well i would say i think the sort of meme on twitter is that eth would like to be money i don't think anything in crypto is money yet i don't think bitcoin is money and in fact i think MakerDAO, DAI, the stablecoin, is probably the closest thing to money in anything in crypto. But, but the I do would, think that but the market would disagree with that, meaning that Bitcoin, from a transaction standpoint, the, the on-chain adjusted transaction volume of Bitcoin last year was just under a trillion dollars, right? Yeah, totally. And, and so Maker, I don't know what DAI specifically is. It, it, it's not zero. It's definitely popular. It's like 60%, I think, of the value locked in DeFi is, mm -hmm. uh, is DAI. Um, and so that's a real amount, right? That That's not um, you know anything to kind of thumb your nose at. But at the same time, we're talking about, I think there's a billion dollars locked in DeFi, right? So let's call it mm -hmm. somewhere in the hundreds of millions of dollars versus hundreds of billions of dollars for Bitcoin. I don't think anything's even close to Bitcoin, but 
I will say that I've got a strong opinion that's loosely held. So hopefully for your sake, you can convince me differently. But that's just kind of the way I think about it. It's like the market almost doesn't care about our opinions. And if you look at the data, the market's determined Bitcoin to be more of money than anything else. What do you think about that? Agree, disagree? Well, I think, you know, they're all striving to be monetary assets, mm -hmm. right? And so the cryptocurrencies, not, not anything else, just the ones that want to be currencies. That's what they're striving to be. Pretty much all of them. I would I think everything in crypto is locked in a battle to be a monetary asset with the exception of maybe some of these um like buy and burn sort of dividend kind of tokens mm -hmm. like MakerDAO it's that Maker has a token that basically accrues value from DAI going up it's called MKR and they have DAI so maybe MKR isn't trying to be money but mm -hmm. DAI is trying to be money ETH is trying to be money Tron is trying to be money and they're all on a spectrum Tron <laughs> Everything. I, you know, All right, go shoot ahead. your shot, you know. Uh, do your thing. Um, shoot your shot. <laughs> everyone's shooting to be money. I mean, that's the innovation, right? Like yep. this is the cool thing about crypto, uh, which is why it's so exciting. Um, you know, we came from the internet. My partner, too, he's a very famous VC in China who was one of the first VCs in the internet. The thing that's exciting about, about crypto is that it's permissionless innovation. And uh, it used to be like no one could create their own TV network. That was just unbelievably like nobody thought that was possible. Look at us now today, right? Look, Ma, we did it. Um, it used to be you think nobody could create your own money. It's insane. It's the province of 200 governments, even really more like 20. Um, now anyone can create their own money. Good luck. It's not that easy. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly ETH is trying to be money. Bitcoin is trying to be money. They're still very far away from it. I think the, the market cap is just a sign that like it's the most valued digital asset. Right. But an asset is different than money. I mean, it's not used every day as a means of exchange and so forth. Nothing really is. We shouldn't kid ourselves about that. If anything, Tether is probably the most used as a medium of exchange asset in all of crypto. I don't know if it's a strong store of value as Bitcoin. The amount of turnover in Tether is, is incredibly high. Uh, but like, you know, so from the, the, from the way economists think about it, the three things, of, uh, you know, aspects of money. In one sense, Bitcoin is much higher as a store of value. In another sense, dying tether actually might be higher as a medium of exchange today. So my big uh, argument this week um, was that ETH is no different than a fiat currency. Yeah. Now, that was that was controversial. <laughs> uh, and and that's fine, right? I have no problem having different thoughts than people. But the one thing to clarify here is. I'm going to guess 50% of people who are yelling and screaming on the internet didn't read the article, which is like a problem in society in general. That's not a crypto thing. That's just like politics, social, you know, culture, all this kind of stuff. But what I said in the article was the monetary policy of ETH makes it no different than a fiat currency, right? Meaning that there's essentially groups of people who make decisions on the monetary policy of the asset periodically. Now, what I will say is a positive for the ETH is money crowd is that every time that they have made the decision, they have made it in what many people would consider the quote unquote right direction, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning that they have decreased the um, supply of money. And so that is good in the sense of they're not going the opposite direction, like a true fiat currency would. But structurally, the fact that this group of people can make that decision and it could go up or down, it's not kind of pre-programmatically decided, in my opinion, makes it no different than a fiat currency. Agree, disagree, think I'm an idiot? Yeah, disagree. 
Disagree. Um, All right. The reason well, is because... Think I was an idiot, so that's a start. <laughs> I read the article, too. I did right. read it, and I didn't trash talk you on Twitter yet. No. Um, so uh, disagree <laughs> because I think, you know, certainly Bitcoin is ahead in that it has the most decentralized and sort of stable social consensus around mm -hmm. its monetary policy. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That's the best thing about Bitcoin today, probably, by far. You know, um, it's not leading in like technology or scalability or privacy, but it's got maybe arguably the most important thing, which is sort of this inbuilt scarcity. It's hard to fork that out. Um, the problem with that, though, is, uh, and this becomes a, a bigger problem with, with sort of new consensus uh, protocols and so forth, is um, uh, the, ultimately these networks have to be secure, right? And the monetary policy is the security of the network, right? And there's the biggest uh, way that Bitcoin could fail today is... Um, if the, when the, uh, basically Bitcoin, the Bitcoin is secured by two sort of cash flows, um, uh, the, the security of it by mining. So the first is by block rewards, and the second is by a small fee that everyone pays to miners when they make a transaction. And a lot of the sort of simulations today of what happens if there's no block rewards, if it's zero, and if it's all just transaction fees, is that there will be serious uh, security risks, and it'll be much easier to attack the network, and it'll be less stable. So, if but, well, just just interrupt for a second mm -hmm. to be clear, that's expectations or predictions of what's going to happen in a hundred years, hundred twenty years, right? Two thousand one hundred like twenty or thirty. Oh, two thousand one hundred. Having is going. Two thousand one hundred forty is when the last Bitcoin will be mined, right? Give or take. Yeah, but it gets progressively. I mean, as you get down to three percent, two percent, one percent. Where are we now? Two and a half or something? I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, something. I mean, the lower it goes the sort of exponentially more difficult it gets. And in fact, we wrote, my colleagues, we have like a fairly large research arm. We did an analysis of, uh, of how this relates to DeFi. And in fact, if uh, you have this issue where if the lending rate, if basically the, the risk-free rate of lending out Bitcoin or Ethereum um, becomes significantly greater then the mining this is actually much a much bigger issue for proof of stake because there's no you don't have to like buy mining equipment and it's just um, it's a decision of whether you stake your asset or you lend your asset out. Uh, it leads to disastrous consequences because people won't stake and they'll mine and, and they'll uh, and they'll lend it out instead. And actually, so that's not as applicable to Bitcoin, um, but it is applicable to Ethereum and any other proof of stake asset. So like I understand why Ethereum is doing this. They have to understand that, and they do understand that uh, especially if they move to proof of stake and new alternative mechanisms, um, the monetary policy has to be flexible for security reasons. I mean, what's going to happen if, if Bitcoin, even 20, 30 years from now, um, is like insecure and it doesn't, it's like easy to attack. Mm -hmm. I, will, the, uh, will the sort of social consensus of scarcity and, and the fixed monetary policy kill it? I don't know. I mean, that'll be a major, a major decision for the Bitcoin community. For sure. So... Going back to the idea that ETH is money, right, and it's no different than a fiat currency, why do you believe it is different than the fiat currency, right? And, and really, my thought process was um, when you outline what it, how is the monetary policy decisions and structure of a fiat currency um, decided, mm -hmm. ETH looks very, very similar to me. Yeah, I think we're all on a spectrum between with fiat currencies because we're, we're all creating our own central banks here. Mm -hmm. um, the main innovation in crypto where anyone can create their central bank is, a, you know, crypto is all about incentives. So the problem of central banking, the fundamental problem is 
uh, there's two tar- goals that the Fed and all Feds try to hit. One, reduce inflation to create a stable currency. That, you know, increases economic output and so forth. Uh, but two, reduce unemployment. Um, and those two things... And then also the third is, uh, that's sort of secret, but is also important and is sort of tied to the second, is uh, you get access to seniorage and you get to basically, like, you get an unlimited amount of spending if you're the government. You could sort of print your way to freedom, at least for a few years in the short term. Um, and these don't trade-offs... Tell don't, tell, don't tell them that. Well, they know, you know? <laughs> well, they I mean, know. Look at, look at Trump's <laughs> tweets. Look at how Powell is reacting to Trump's... Like, Powell is much more conservative before he became the Fed chair than after. Um, it's sort of inevitable. Like we try to create these mechanisms of church and state to separate the central bank from the government. And often they work for a few decades, but no currency has remained stable for more than 100 years. Uh, so these basically, this is an incentive problem. Like these three things conflict with each other all the time. And there's governments have every incentive to sacrifice inflation for to juice unemployment or to spend more money, especially in election years, right? Um, but Bitcoin and Ethereum don't have that. Okay, there's no like concept of unemployment rates mm-hmm. that need to, you know, if like your monetary policy goes up and down. And it's miners that get the seniorage and the miners today don't really have much influence or say in the, um, in the sort of social consensus of making these monetary policies. So in that sense, ETH is a great improvement. Really the only thing ETH today is sort of the only lever, the, the decision that is affecting their monetary policy is one, everyone wants to be lower. And then two is security. And that's cool. I think the trade-off between, uh, you know, we're incentive to increase security of the network in this cryptographic uh, way. That's a much cooler trade-off than we're incentivized to juice the economy whenever it's an election year. That's a, still a quantum leap ahead of all other fiat currencies. Yeah. So just so people understand, um, Ethereum... Uh, is the obviously the network there's ether the asset and the yeah. monetary policy of ether is something called a minimum issuance uh and the minimum issuance is basically is it every year uh how, how often is the decision made i don't Do know, know? okay so periodically they, yeah. they, they basically make a decision as to uh the rate of issuance that will occur until the next decision yeah um and so again kind of a positive argument for ETH is that they have decreased that every time. So it it has uh, acted similar to Bitcoin in that uh, the Bitcoin having. Yeah. The two fundamental issues that I have is so fiat currencies, I, I basically outlaid three things. So there's no fixed supply, there's an inflationary supply schedule, and the monetary policy decisions are divide, are decided by a group of people, right? Mm-hmm. So no fixed supply, inflationary monetary schedule, and the decision as to that rate is decided by a group of people. If you look at ETH, there's no fixed supply. It has an inflationary monetary supply or a schedule, and it is decided by a group of people. Now, when you use that framework, which is a framework that, you know, in full transparency, I made up, right? Then it's you pretty can, good. I yeah, like it. Then you can apply it to ETH and fiat, and they look exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. In comparison, if you were to put Bitcoin into that, you would say that Bitcoin has a fixed supply, so it doesn't meet that first criteria. Now, it has a disinflationary supply schedule, meaning that there is an additional increase in supply every uh, year, every day, et cetera. It is programmatically declining in time. Ethereum has done the exact same thing. So it's been disinflationary over Mm -hmm. time, but the difference is that 
Bitcoin is programmed to continue to be disinflationary, Ethereum could step in and say, uh, hey, there's security concerns. And so therefore, we are actually going to uh, increase the rate rather than decrease it. And then the third is that the monetary policy decisions are decided by a small group of individuals. A big difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum, for example, is that uh, there is a preset monetary policy with Bitcoin that is programmatic. And there is the possibility that people could come together with majority and change that monetary policy, right? That's kind of the social consensus you're talking about, et cetera. The difference is with Ethereum, that is not a preset programmatic monetary policy, right? And so there's kind of these periodic decisions that need to be made. Now, one, am I absolutely crazy for kind of evaluating it this way and using that framework? Or how do you kind of think through that framework as what's good, what's bad, and, and kind of what did I miss? No, I, th I think it's good. I think the the thing you're missing a little bit is that it's all a spectrum. There are it's like there are people at the end of everything. It's turtles mm -hmm. all the way down. Um, so Bitcoin is clearly optimizing for being as little controlled by people as possible. This mm -hmm. is like Nick Sabo, uh, sort of inventor of smart contracts, is this concept of like there's dry and like wet code, you know, and uh, and wet code is messy and involves people and lawyers and so forth. Dry code is automated and automation of like of decision making is the it's like the bedrock of of capitalism and, and our industrial engine um so it's great uh if you sort of automate away um the decision making about how you change the monetary policy uh if that's what you're optimizing for if that's what you think is the best um thing that creates the best money supply uh or the best store of value i think that's possibly the case probably um but Ethereum is optimizing for other things, uh, which is that Ethereum is fast moving relatively. I mean, it's taken a long time for ETH 2.0 to come, but it's fast moving. It's dynamic. It's more, it's like, it's up the other things that make something a good digital asset, money supply, like having built in privacy um, or having scalability, uh, whether at the layer one or layer two, having programmability, like being able to allow a decentralized financial ecosystem to exist natively in a trustless way um, tied to your currency and in your ecosystem is very powerful. Uh, it's why, you know, uh, almost all of the collateral behind uh, a decentralized finance is ETH. It's not Bitcoin yet because um, it's hard to do in a trustless way. So those things could make something a better money in a way. Um, and, uh, and having your monetary policy be decided by a group of people and be more flexible is a requirement if you want to optimize for that fast, you know, for moving fast and uh, and being dynamic. So it's trade-offs, right? Um, clearly, the market today values that uh, the Bitcoin trade-off is the best. But actually, like you and I, we're pretty sure, like the crypto ecosystem will be in the trillions in the next ten, whatever, how long it takes. So actually, the market is really telling us that the real solution has not been found. Like there's something missing, you know. Like there's a you could kind of think of it like five trillion is like at max capacity, maybe, right? Like mm -hmm. when when crypto becomes a true store of value. So Bitcoin is what two hundred billion. So it's like a four percent chance, or no, sorry, forty. Yeah, forty percent chance. Wait, hold on. four. Yeah, four percent chance that it becomes big. That the Bitcoin of today is the store of value of the future, right? That leaves a lot you, of room. You could, but you could also flip that and say. Um, Bitcoin's dominance is at 60-65% and therefore the market determines there's a 65% chance that Bitcoin is the winner. 
right? Out of all of the options today, there's a 65% chance that Bitcoin is the winner versus everybody else. Yeah, but I mean, that's not the real, it's like the real market size of crypto isn't what crypto is today. It's gold. like most people still think it's gold, right? Okay. Yeah, you know, like 90% of the people still think it's gold. Yep. So it's called, called 7 trillion or so. Yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, but yeah, Bitcoin is in the lead, clearly. The market determines these things. So here's my other argument is that, and, and to be very clear with folks, I am actually a fan of what Ethereum empowers people to do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of innovation that's going on, a lot of experimentation. I think that stuff is super important to kind of the health of an entire ecosystem, right? I am not, and when you ask about the maximalism, I am not of the belief that Bitcoin is the only thing that will ever be valuable, you know, period in all this entire world, mainly because I come at it from the sense of the entire financial system is going to get rebuilt in parallel. Mm-hmm. And therefore it would be like saying, you know, the US dollar is the only thing in the financial system. No, there's credit there. You know, there's all assets. There's all kinds of other stuff that goes on. So, so and think, they're mutually reinforcing. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And, yeah. and but yeah, they make the dollar more important, more valuable, yeah. et cetera, right? Yeah, because so, we have such an advanced financial system. So if you think of the dollar as that base unit of account, I believe personally that Bitcoin will be the base unit of account of this future world. There'll be all kinds of other stuff that are built, but Bitcoin because it's that base unit of count as money, it ends up being the most important, right? Because it's kind of the foundation, but there's a bunch of other stuff that is important that gets built. Ethereum today is helping to empower some of that to be built. Uh, and let's take the DeFi sector, for example. When you have decentralized financial products, you need to have some form of money, right? That is used in these products. Mm-hmm. The difference here is that while some people are using ETH, the most popular one in the Ethereum ecosystem is not ETH, it's actually DAI, right? And DAI is the ERC-20 token, kind of you get through the whole thing, but it is fundamentally different. On top of that, what you're seeing is teams work to bring Bitcoin and its monetary policy properties to Ethereum with TBTC, et cetera. And so again, I go back, like my opinion doesn't matter, your opinion doesn't matter, frankly, yeah. the market's opinion is what matters. And the market is determining that in even just the DeFi world, there is something better than ETH as money, right? Meaning DAI. And also there are teams that are going out to search, how do we bring the monetary policies of Bitcoin to this ecosystem? Totally. Let's stop there for a second. Agree, disagree. Is that the right way to look at it? Do you look at it a different way? Just walk me through that type of the analysis. No, totally. It's... um. Uh, I would, I think, die, like I would reframe, die is money, not ETH is money. <laughs> ETH is collateral. ETH is gold. Gold is not money. You know, mm-hmm. it's been many years since anyone's used gold as money. So, uh, which is fine. Like the don't, monitor, don't tell Peter Schiff. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> um, but again, like I like, I like the dollar. I like stability. Uh, I think the greatest crypto is about financial access, really. And uh, the most wanted financial asset around the world is the dollar. I mean, you have these stats where like 90% or like some massive percent of all $100 bills or all bills in general is outside the US. Like it's just so many percentage of countries are fully dollarized at this point. Uh, so just bringing the dollar to the world and bringing sort of the, the Fed's central banking policies to the world, that I think is where the next stage of growth in, in, in crypto is happening. Absolutely. You know, um, I don't think there's any doubt about that in my mind. So I'm sort of a stablecoin maximalist in a way when it comes to what is money. I think stablecoins will be money, at least for the next few decades. Stablecoin maximalist. I haven't heard that before. 
<laughs> Heard it here first. No, I don't. I, I didn't invent it. But uh, um, and so what that means is uh, the asset that collateralizes the stablecoin is going to be very valuable too through a sort of weird chicken and egg loop, though. Um, and it's just like gold is very valuable because it's the largest. You know, it's one of the largest stores in uh, in central banks. You know, on balance sheets. Um, so uh, uh, you know the the problem with Bitcoin and DeFi. Uh, is that it's not programmable, so you can't have DeFi on Bitcoin. You just, I mean, there's a few initiatives with sidechains. I, I disagree, but go ahead. Well, I mean, we'll clearly talk about it. Go ahead. We'll, true today. We'll, we'll talk. I disagree, but go ahead. We'll All right, talk sure. About it. <laughs> but today, it, okay. I mean, it's very. You, it'd be so impossible to to remake MakerDAO um, or Compound or something on Bitcoin natively. Um, there's no trustless way to put Bitcoin, port Bitcoin onto uh, the DeFi ecosystem. There's trusted ways to do it. Uh, there's wrapped Bitcoin, where some trusted entity, right? Bitco has one. Um, some other exchanges are thinking about doing one in the next few months. Uh, they basically just put Bitcoin in on chain, and they show proof of reserves, and they issue um, like a synthetic Bitcoin that's backed, but just like Tether or something, really, um, or USDC. And uh, they have like no traction at all. Uh, it's like a couple million dollars is like, is in the is in those assets. So clearly. I didn't like a priori. I wasn't sure that would be the case. It mm. seemed like why would people use Tether? Why wouldn't they want to use a centralized wrapped Bitcoin? Um, but this is the market's decided at this point. So we're waiting for a trustless Bitcoin. That's really, really hard. I've invested in a bunch of technology projects that will enable that, like Cosmos, and you have Polkadot interoperability chains. You have what Keep is doing, which is fantastic. But there's trade offs. None of them are technically proven to be technically secure yet. They're costly. Like they're not very capital efficient. Mm -hmm. You have to like lock up. I don't know what the latest is, but you have to sort of over collateralize and keep your uh, uh, with both Bitcoin and ETH. So that's kind of weird. Like why would you want to if you're using if you want to get a synthetic Bitcoin, that probably means you don't really want to hold ETH. So you, but you have to hold both for security reasons anyway. Um, there's a cost to that. So uh, clearly today. That's sort of the ETH game, which is can you be collateral for a financial system that is literally like a thousand to ten thousand times bigger than the base financial system? Like we know that from just looking at the, yeah. you know, the ratio of gold to derivative market cap or something like that, um, and that's ETH big play. So there's this framework that I had, and uh, great. <laughs> we we will uh, I'll, I'll describe it for those that are just listening or, yeah, or watching at home. So basically, on, on the left side you have. Um, Bitcoin on the right side, you have Ethereum, right? And around both uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum is the infrastructure for those uh, ecosystems. And so the way I think about it is Bitcoin is uh, sound money, right? And in, in the principles that are uh, around that. But all of the infrastructure historically has been centralized infrastructure. So this is when you see the, the Coinbase, the BlockFi's, et cetera, of the world, right? So kind of sound money surrounded by centralized infrastructure. When you go to the Ethereum side, what you get is decentralized infrastructure with an asset that has is unproven to be sound money today, right? So kind of think of, I think the ideal world here is how do we have sound money with decentralized infrastructure, right? And so you have these two different worlds. Each piece has uh, a part of that like utopia, and we've got to bring them together. Now, that brings the debate of do you bring Bitcoin to Ethereum, which you kind of just described with TBTC, et cetera, and these wrapped, et cetera, or can you actually bring decentralized infrastructure to Bitcoin, 
right? Um, I can't yet announce the name of the company, but I'm sure you've actually seen the company. Uh, we invested in a business that is essentially going to bring um, the lending capabilities of DeFi to Bitcoin, right? There's other teams that are working on other aspects of it. Do you think that the obstacles today to having sound money in Bitcoin with truly decentralized infrastructure around it, are those technical challenges that can't be solved? Are those uh, what I call time and attention, meaning that uh, we haven't had enough teams working on them yet, it just hasn't for long enough to actually get these solutions? Or is there something else that has prevented us from having that kind of full stack integration with sound money and decentralized infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, this is... Uh this is like the trillion dollar question. <laughs> Look, this is also the thing that makes most maximalists very uncomfortable to talk about, um, which is Bitcoin has not innovated in a decade. And uh, is that a bad thing? Depends what your perspective is. It's okay. certainly a bad thing for developers and for app makers. Like imagine if, uh, I mean, developing in the 1980s was way harder than being a developer now. The languages were way more difficult to learn. They were like assembly code. Um, the developer toolkit was way more difficult. Um, it was so imaginably more like more difficult to create um, software and product, you know, uh, software products uh, in the early days of the of the internet when there was less tooling and libraries mm -hmm. and so forth. And that's where we are with Bitcoin, and we haven't moved. So now, it's way easier to do it on Ethereum. It will always be continually, continuously way easier. And in fact. The spread will probably increase. So you're, you kind of have to like, I mean, yes, it's technically possible, I think, to do scalability and to create a pretty good, okay programming environment that can maybe do uh, like lending in Bitcoin. Um, maybe, you know, the project you backed is, is the one that's going to crack it. But ETH is flexible. It's moving. So it's always getting better and better. It's creating JavaScript when, you know, Bitcoin is still trying to get I don't know what's that old but, but like here, C plus, C sharp. But I think um, this is one of the key work. the key things, right? Is and this is where the Bitcoin crowd heavily, heavily disagrees with kind of the Ethereum crowd, I think. The Bitcoin crowd would argue all of that development and speed and experimentation, et cetera, are actually flaws, not advantages, around one specific perspective. Money you get one shot. And so on a spectrum between like what I call like sexy innovation, et cetera, and confidence level of sustainable store value medium of exchange on that spectrum, Bitcoin is as far to the confidence side as you can get. So it's very slow. Yeah. It's very intentional. It's very much thinking through, we have $200 billion, give or take in this asset. We can't fuck this up. All of the innovation, experimentation, et cetera, that's all great, but it can't happen at the expense of screwing up that core base unit of account. Mm -hmm. Now, I think Ethereum, what ends up happening is the speed, the innovation, et cetera, that crowd actually looks at that as an advantage, right? So they say, look, you've got to move, you've got to innovate, you, you got to do all this kind of stuff. They're optimizing for two different things. And I think what ends up happening is if you wanted to compare ETH as money to Bitcoin as money, right? I think most people would argue the Bitcoin argument in that specific perspective is probably much stronger than the ETH one. Mm -hmm. Now, when you go to the infrastructure side, the innovation, the sexiness, all the shiny stuff, et cetera, the speed, innovation, you know, experimentation, all that, 
is a much better way to look at infrastructure, right, than the actual base unit of account. And so that's where I actually think it makes sense to me, at least, and again, I'm hyper-biased in all of this, that the developers would run into Ethereum where there was the possibility and, and uh, empowerment to do all that innovation around infrastructure, et cetera, leave Bitcoin to be built slow, methodically, intentionally, et cetera, how it's been built. And then eventually you'll see those developers migrate over and build that same infrastructure that they did all the testing and experimentation in Ethereum to build that around what ends up being the sound money. It's almost like the sound money is a magnet for the infrastructure, but all of the experimentation is empowered on Ethereum. Yeah. It just eventually like the things that work come to Bitcoin. Yeah. And I know all this is hyper, hyper, hyper controversial people will literally be freaking out that saying I'm an idiot, et cetera. Well, it's not that's just that. my perspective. I mean, it, these are complex systems of and course. we're sort of like, you've made like six assumptions, you know, that of we course. just don't know. It'll take a few years to figure out like technical risk, what, uh, um, but yeah, look, I think, I think it's possible, but clearly today, um, you know, the other story, let alone Bitcoin, um, uh, DeFi hasn't moved to any other ecosystem. It hasn't moved to EOS. It hasn't moved to Tezos or Algorand or anything like that. ETH is just controlling the narrative and controlling the, uh, like almost every good DeFi project we back, good team, or even team that we look at is building on Ethereum. It'd be sort of nonsensical to not at this point in time from a business perspective. So you have network effects there. Um, so you have to think, are the network effects and developer community and so forth strong enough that you can sort of bootstrap ETH into a stable store of value? Um, Stable is a rough word in all of crypto. So, so you're talking over. about almost like inversing it, whereas the Bitcoin argument would be you start with sound money, then you build all the infrastructure, the derivatives, other well, layers, Well, but you have to – you start with sound money, but your infrastructure is always going to be significantly worse. I mean at least 10 years behind, maybe but the, more. But, but Today, it's 10 years behind uh, or that. five, I guess, no, 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 no. since Hold DeFi on. is sort of five Hold years on, old. Hold on though. Here's the difference though. The infrastructure around Bitcoin is 1,000 times – minimum more popular and more robust than ETH. The difference is that the ETH infrastructure is decentralized. Like if you compare decentralized infrastructure on ETH to decentralized infrastructure on Bitcoin, you're correct. If you compare just infrastructure, Bitcoin has a head start and won't get caught, right? Because all of the Ethereum infrastructure, the Ethereum specific infrastructure is specifically going after this de uh, decentralized opportunity. But like Coinbase yeah. is originally Bitcoin infrastructure, right? BitGo is Bitcoin infrastructure, oh, sure, sure. But, right? But by the way, they've been co-opted by, I mean, they, they expand. They, absolutely, they the expand. The purest, the Bitcoin only, uh, I mean, the ecosystem you're talking about, exchanges, custodians, market infrastructure, on-off ramps. That's, there's almost none of those that are just for Bitcoin yet. Now, Bitcoin has much more liquidity, of mm -hmm. course, much more pairs. But actually, ETH is doing a pretty good job. Even XRP They're not at zero. is doing a pretty good job. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. I'm not, again, I'm not a maximalist in the sense of like, there's I mean, just the, one like Zappo and, and the original none. companies that were only Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. They've lost in the market. Coin, I mean, Coinbase got a lot of flack for when it launched a bunch of additional coins, but they're the market leader and they're the monopolist at this point. That's the way to do it. So actually, a lot of that infrastructure is there. Obviously, more infrastructure is there for Bitcoin, of course. Um, but my point is that you need to be decentralized, right? Because if you just just because you have a decentralized store of value doesn't mean like if you then give it to a lender or whatever, if you then lend it out in a centralized way, you lose 95% of the benefits of it. You know, you lose the decentral, you lose a lot of the privacy, you lose a lot of the censorship resistance. Um, so this, and that's important. I think that's important up the stack, just like it is at the base. So from a theoretical perspective, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
there's two points that come into play now. Do we go from a centralized infrastructure around Bitcoin and those companies can decentralize over time? Maybe. I don't think we know that answer yet, right? And, and there's plenty of people who will pontificate on whether that's true or not. The bigger thing, though, is how much of the DeFi infrastructure do you actually think is decentralized? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know uh, the I don't know the answer, and I actually don't even know if the answer is bad answer for the yeah, DeFi yeah. community. I just like how do you even figure that out? Yeah, right, because it it can't be a hundred percent, but it's also not zero percent. Yeah, absolutely not. No, it needs to become more decentralized. Uh, there's a lot of sort of governance decentralization infrastructure that has to happen on the Ethereum community in DeFi right now. Um, like, how do you make a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, work at scale? Um, which will, you, which if how do you make oracles work, work in a decentralized way? That's very difficult. Yeah. Those are big challenges. They're technical risks. Like something like a DAO to me, if you can make it work in a secure, predictable way that people have confidence in, it would be massive. It, mm -hmm. it would be incredible. Mm -hmm. It's just we got a lot of work to do to get there. And I think that you're saying the same thing, right? Of just like this stuff is really, really hard. Totally. <laughs> it's not totally. going to happen overnight. And so that's why we need as many people working on it as we possibly can. Totally. But I do think there is benefits to centralization at the beginning. Significant. And okay, I think most explain that. So you're building complex software. And the more complex it is, the more you need like a you know, a corporation is the most authoritarian and centralized that you a democracy or like a republic form of government for a corporation would be nonsensical. Like you need to have an authoritarian top down structure. It's at least somewhat hierarchical. You know, Silicon Valley is less hierarchical, whatever. But it needs to be pretty hierarchical um, in order to ship fast and have secure code um, and respond to customer demands and so forth. Uh, so I think, you know, we've seen this trend where most of the DeFi projects, they start pretty centralized and their equity investments and, uh, and, you know, they have corporations or foundations that have sort of hierarchical, they're built, they build software the way that Microsoft built software. And that's good because Microsoft builds good software. Um, but over time, they will decentralize. Uh, so Compound actually just released its token or announced it released its token a few weeks ago. It's just to existing shareholders like us. Compound is the second biggest or so. It's one of the biggest uh, decentralized finance projects. It's basically a money market on Ethereum. It's actually one of the most sophisticated, probably working uh, dApps uh, today. Um, and, and yeah, they just released a token. Uh, and so they're moving gradually towards decentralization. I think that's great. I mean, there might be a period where the company dissolves. There might be a period where the CEO is no longer involved with it. Um, I think that's possible. It's hard, of course, but this is a community of decentralization. And like all things start, I mean, most things start centralized and decentralized over time. Like Satoshi, very centralized at the beginning, of course. And then, I mean, even I like to like look at George Washington. You have to have a moment where George Washington leaves and sort of like gives it up to other people. Um, but it's fine if it takes eight years to get there, right? Actually, that's probably the golden number. If you look historically of like how democracies form, which is a form of political decentralization, usually you have a ruler that rules for like 10, 20 years, uh, sometimes less. Like George Washington, the first one is this guy Solon of Athens. We don't have to talk about that. Um, they all like institute democracies and they rule for 10 years to make sure things go okay and complex systems get adapted and institutionalized. Then they peace, you know, they leave, they travel the world, they go anonymous like Satoshi. I think that's probably a good model. It's like a 4,000-year-old model of decentralization. It probably applies here. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard anyone describe it that way. I love that. Yeah. What, um, what are other areas that you guys are excited about and looking for investments and think are going to be big over the next kind of three to five years? 
Um, I think outside of DeFi, which is it's uh, it's kind of cool now. We were in it before it was cool. You know, we've been doing it for five years. It's great that like there's a when you see like people on LinkedIn have in their bios like DeFi influencer or like then you it's kind of like it's a good it's like okay this is a thing now um, which is starting to happen. Uh, but it, it doesn't matter. It's still very early, I think, when you think about the market size of like store value and so forth. Um, other things, we love looking at uh, the Asia centralized infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I think that's fascinating too. You touched on this point of actually maybe the centralized infrastructure can become decentralized. You're seeing amazing business model innovation around that happening in like greater China, Asia, with, for instance, the things Binance is doing with Binance Chain, Binance Dex, Binance Token. Now there are the other the other uh, big exchanges like OK and Huobi also have their tokens and their chains as well. Um, that is very cool. That you're starting from the most centralized thing. I mean, a, an exchange it's a company, right? It's the most centralized thing possible in the in the crypto ecosystem, and they're trying to decentralize over time. And that is a very cool pro. I think it'll take years and years, but watching that happen is fantastic sort of application level innovation. And the coolest. I mean, a lot of what we do here is very infrastructure, you know, mm-hmm. but it's this is the coolest like application level infrastructure or, or application level innovation happening in crypto right now. How have you historically split dollars between uh, Asia and um, non-Asia? And then will that those percentages change, you think, over the next couple of years? Yeah, the way we think about it is less Asia versus non-Asia. We think crypto is global, global from day one, um, global user base. Uh, the big trend is... Uh, the tech, best technology, sort of tech infrastructure, is in the West by far. And then the best business model innovation, the best centralized infrastructure, at least by fastest growing, and I think sort of qualitative factors like most innovative designs and so forth, um, the best business model innovation is in the East. This is broadly true outside of crypto too, by the way. I mean, uh, all the AI and sort of like semiconductors and low-level technology, they're all, you know, they're all happening in the U.S., uh, there's a push for that to change, of course. Uh, a lot of a lot of China uh, Chinese dollars going towards changing that, but they almost all start in the U.S. or you know like Israel, other like sort of very tech hubs. Um, but the best business model innovation happens in Asia. Like WeChat is vastly superior as a messaging and sort of social media and like all-purpose app than the American apps. It just blows it out of the water, and um, uh, and so yeah, and even like you even see this in uh, in other like. Like in Oda, in the O2O industry, uh, marketplace businesses, you know, Uber and Lyft, they still have not figured out unit economics. They lose billions of dollars. The only profitable at scale um, marketplace business, this is like a $250 billion, it's the size of, of crypto, you know, industry, is Meituan, which is like an $80 billion company and they're, they're very profitable. Um, they're sort of do food sharing and, uh, and ride sharing in Asia. So th- it just it just blows it away. Um, anyway, so um, I got a little diverted, but uh, but generally that's kind of how we think about it. Like a lot of the almost all of our venture investments at this point are in Asia, uh, backing these sort of centralized companies, and most of our technology investments and core protocols are in the West. Yeah, it's fascinating to kind of hear you break down not by geography but also by what type of investment per geography. Mm-hmm. Um, what is an area that you think people are excited about right now that they are actually shouldn't be or or they're missing the boat? Like, like, like there's something that's driving uh, attention, capital, excitement, but maybe isn't as um, – there's, there's no, not as much meat there as, uh, as people want there to be. Yeah, the big thing uh, – I don't know how popular this is anymore, but 
I know you liked it a lot, so I'm going to say it, is uh, security tokens, Mm -hmm. I think are sort of missed the mark. I think we're sort of starting to see that. I'd be curious what you think, but, um, you know, the idea of tokenizing everything is something that I actually do agree with. I think synthetic assets will be, like I said, I said, you know, the biggest impact of crypto over the next decade, the next group of crypto users will be people that are using it to get access to the dollar. So that is a synthetic asset, stable coins. But, um, uh, but I think security tokens, doing it in a centralized way, um, doing it for real estate and, you know, even for dollars. I mean, stable coins is that there's like, there's security tokens, which are centralized and they're fully backed reserves and they're centralized custody. And then there's decentralized stable coins like DAI. And I think the latter group will blow the former group out. And, um, and so, yeah, does that count? That's my big, I'm pretty yeah. negative on security tokens. I would argue that, um, I would argue that some forms of security tokens are bigger than all of DeFi combined already. So like take figure, right? Which company that we've invested a bunch of capital on the mm-hmm. board of they've done over a billion dollars in digital, uh, HELOCs. What, what is HELOCs? A home equity line of credit. Okay. Oh yeah. Then it. they've moved into student loan refinancing, mortgage refinancing, et cetera. They don't use the name security tokens, right? They don't talk about blockchain this or blockchain that that often. Mm-hmm. But what they've essentially done is they've digitized or tokenized a mortgage, mm-hmm. right? And then what the, in order to transact those assets with other parties on Wall Street, they had to basically rebuild the settlement layer, right? So DTCC settles traditional assets in um, kind of legacy world. They rebuilt DTCC on a blockchain they call it provenance. And now they take these digitized or tokenized assets and they sell them through this new blockchain-based settlement system. They've actually done more HELOCs than all the value locked in DeFi today, mm-hmm. right? So here's the, the difference. I agree with you on the people who run around and kind of pound the table and say, like, we're a security token company. That's going to be really hard business, right? doesn't mean that they can't be successful, but it's just going to be really hard business. The people who instead say, I'm going to help you buy the same asset from the same counterparty in a digital format, much easier business and much more likely to be successful. And so where I've come out on this is I believe that every asset, every stock, bond, currency, commodity will be digitized in the future or tokenized. The difference is one is not going to happen overnight, obviously, but two is we're not going to talk about them as tokens like crypto tokens, et cetera, because the social ramifications of doing that in conversation with the legacy world, they just, that they're like, uh, was it repealed, right? They they just like, they they just shudder the second that they hear tokens, Mm -hmm. if you go to a Wall Street bank, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So instead now what you're seeing is people just describe them as something else, you know, digital HELOCs, digital mortgages, et cetera. And that's actually really, really big and getting bigger. And so to me, like that's where we end up, but it's the same end game of, Every stock, bond, currency, and commodity is digitized. Your point about stablecoin is just the digitization or tokenization of cash, right? Is a good example, and I think we're going to see that across real estate and everything else. Yeah, I think we should step back a little bit and say what are blockchains useful in mm-hmm. in the early days, and um, and I think there's some uses where. Generally, I also, so let me, this reminded me, I would also add the entire category of enterprise blockchain are things that 
totally overhyped and don't make any sense for the next 10 years or so. Yep. And the reason I say this is because generally with new technologies, um, they're not very scalable. I mean, crypto is where it's like pre-DSL, pre-modem era um, uh, levels of scalability. So they're not very scalable. They don't work very well. They're not very secure. Um, and so generally, they work best when they enable u- new use cases as opposed to when they enable operational efficiencies. Like you look, just yesterday, uh, Atrium um, uh, went, you know, closed up. Atrium was, they raised $75 million from all the best VCs to, and their thesis was, let's use software to make a law firm much more efficient. Yeah. Turn like tech, tech first law firm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said that was a bad idea. Turns out, actually, uh, even where, like 30 years after, like soft or whatever software revolution started, we're still not at the point where um, a tech first law firm is that like unlocks that much more operational efficiencies than just a normal law firm that has a bunch of old people that are using like 20 year old Microsoft Word or whatever. Um, so that's that's 30 years in. Right. So I think the idea that. Um, but but blo- let, let me just clarify one thing. Those law firms only exist still today because they do use technology. They do use that software. Now, they may not do it in the, the Silicon Valley, like hyper, hyper cutting edge way, but they still use computers. They still use all sorts of different software. They still have SaaS licenses of, of different technologies, et cetera. So it's not that it's binary, like they don't use technology. They do use technology. I agree with you that it's not what you and I would consider like the latest and greatest technology, but they might be... 10 yeah. years behind, five years behind in I technology? Don't know. I would guess the zero to one wasn't that important either. I mean, when I like, you, do you hear none of them story? exist though? No, the ones who didn't make the leap don't, don't exist. <laughs> but do you hear, did you hear stories about in the 90s or 80s, all these law firms that just refused to adapt to tech, that refused oh, to buy yeah, computers yeah, going yeah, yeah. out of business? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the ones the services are, businesses are a little bit different than. Kind of maybe other businesses. I mean, it's an extremity to prove a point, you know. Yep. Um, uh, but still, thirty years, long time. Uh, so I think that the operational benefits to using blockchain as sort of like to smooth back office solutions and so forth are just so minute. Like, I think they might be negative actually, depending on regulatory compliance. Like, some people tell me that you would know more because I don't invest in this category, but that actually custodying tokenized assets sometimes is more expensive because there's you, there's like this regulatory uncertainty and ambiguity and so you have to cover we, we've yeah haven't invested there yes yeah i, I yeah. agree with you so that so in some ways it's actually worse and and even if it's like one or two percent better which i think is probably the best case scenario i'm willing to bet i don't know much about figures business i'm willing to bet that the fact that they're doing so well probably has more to do with the fact that they have a rock star founder who's like a legend in his industry mm-hmm. and has a, created an amazing team whether or not they were really using that much blockchain technology. There's a little bit of confounding of variables here. So you know? the only thing that I will say and is... And the other, by the way, the other comparison would be like, yeah. do you think companies that had intranets in the 90s, that's probably the closest comp, actually, more than the law firm. Like, did, comp, did the first companies that developed intranets, did they do significantly better than the companies that didn't have intranets? I don't think so. I mean, yeah, most yeah. companies don't even use intranets today. Yeah, the place where we've come out on this uh, is like figuring provenance is a perfect example. If a company wants to use the blockchain internally to like do the operational efficiency stuff of their own operations, not very exciting. I yeah. agree with you there. Where we see the application 
uh, being super valuable, and this is what Figure's doing, is they've built a blockchain that is going to replace the infrastructure of a marketplace. So it's a bunch of people in an industry all have to go to one location to trade. So for them, take Helox, for example, kind of asset-backed securities, et cetera, two to three day transaction time, uh, settlement times, right? You get high cost. Uh, and then the rating agencies, a lot of people don't realize the rating agencies are overly conservative because they have latency of information. They only mm -hmm. get reports every 30, 60, 90 days. Mm -hmm. So when Provenance steps in and all of a sudden says, hey, look, you can transact here, same assets, same counterparties, but it's just in a digital format, same day settlement, if you think about it as a counterparty on that trade, my capital is actually at risk for a shorter period of time, right? I can drive some cost efficiency, which again happens, but isn't the the sexy part of it. And then even if you look at like the rating agencies, all of a sudden they start saying, wait a minute, we have better access to information. Therefore, we can more accurately rate these securities. And therefore, it is likely that we'll get an actual increase in rating, not because we're changing the rating rubric, but it's just that we have better access to information. Now, those marketplaces, you know, asset-backed securities, for example, DTCC last year did two quadrillion dollars worth of trades, which fucking like I don't even know how to write that number, right? It's just an incredible number. If only they had the fees of Coinbase, yeah. right? <laughs> taking two yeah. percent on each. Trade. Exactly. Then but, you're gonna but have the, a trillion dollar. Business. The reason why I talk about this is if somebody was like, "Hey, I'm going to use the blockchain internally or just with one other customer, etc." Yeah. I agree with you. Like the operational efficiencies there don't matter. Where it does become interesting, at least to me, is when you say, "Here's." probably one of the largest markets in the world, we're going to replace the market infrastructure with a better way of doing that. It all goes back to this uh, theory that I have. So the whole value chain of what's going to get created here goes back to one single innovation that no one ever talks about in the space, which is triple entry accounting. So if you go back to 1400s, right, double entry accounting gets uh, created. Um, and there's a whole wild story about how that happened, where literally Leonardo da Vinci is responsible for like driving uh, the adoption of double entry accounting, mm -hmm. uh, simply because he was friends with the Medici's. But in 1989, triple entry accounting is invented by this Japanese researcher, then you end up getting um, 2005, somebody writes a white paper about how do we do triple entry accounting with uh, digital receipts in a cryptographic way. Uh, and Sorry, then what year was that? 2005. Took a while. Okay. So 1989 to 2005. Yeah, yeah. But again, nobody really cared about 1989, the, the original white paper around this or yeah, yeah. Uh, the second one, 2005, because they're all academic, theoretical, what the hell is triple entry accounting, et cetera. 2009 comes around, Satoshi Nakamoto releases a white paper, but also releases an application of triple entry accounting, right? And all of a sudden, what happens is we get Bitcoin grows into this, you know, $150, $200 billion asset. If you take triple entry accounting and you look at how are we going to apply that to every single financial service, I think that will create more value than anything else. And what you're talking about around decentralized finance, that's what it is. It's taking triple entry accounting and it's providing connectivity to balance sheets, assets, et cetera, the same way that the internet connected humans and devices so we could communicate. Now you're just applying that to value financial assets, et cetera. The day that I realized that framework, it completely changed the way that I looked at a lot of this stuff. And it really came down to forget quote unquote blockchain where is an automated application of triple entry accounting going to create value? Because ultimately, that's what a blockchain is, right? It's just an automated version of triple entry accounting. And to me, that's super, super exciting and very, very disruptive. But we're not going to understand that for a long time. Like, it's going to be one of those things, you know, 20 years from now, people are like, oh, that triple entry accounting thing was really important, right? Yeah. Um, You're thinking possible. really hard. 
No, I, I, <laughs> I think it's possible that's the case. Um, I just, I generally like, this is at taking, taking our investor hat on yep. for a moment. I mean, you know, there's important things outside of what makes, what makes us money. Um, but generally when you have a new technology, there's sort of, it comes in, this is a, Chris Dixon talked about this from Andreessen recently. There's strong forms and there's weak forms of technology. And uh, internet was a classic case. Strong form was the internet. Intranet was the weak form. Similar mm-hmm. enabling technology, like similar protocols um, that went underneath both of them. One was totally global and open. One was just for corporations and for productivity gains. And, uh, you know, there's probably some pretty good intranet companies. They do fine. Um, but they're a little more incremental. They're quite a bit more incremental. And I think that's the case with a lot of this stuff in security token, enterprise blockchain land. It's disconcerting to me that many pipe, many, I mean, I, I started in crypto in 2014 and uh, that was when Goldman and, and Citi and all these banks, NASDAQ, were getting started with these programs. So it's like, why is it taking five years for them to develop um, and to show many significant gains? My thinking is just also, as well as a strong and weak form um, framework, it's also a question of timing. Like there will be more operational efficiencies of blockchains, like of blockchains as the technology matures. And uh, there will be more enterprise use cases over the next few decades. Uh, but I think we're still super, super early, you know. Do you and so for me, that- I like looking at the, you know, we hit, we try to chase super unicorns. You know, we try to think the thing that will be trillion dollar protocols, hundred billion dollar companies. And uh, that's what we're seeing in this sort of, crypt, you know, the crypto native financial system is, is uh, spawning those. Do you think that there's a world where regulators ever allow, let's say, equities, for example, to trade on an open, permissionless, decentralized protocol where they have no ability to step in? I don't, don't think they really have a choice if the DeFi movement keeps going. I mean, the next thing will be synthetic well, they assets. Well, they you absolutely could, can, right? Because they can just tell the companies you can't list your asset there. Uh, on DEXs, though. I mean, DEXs are just code. You know, the founders might leave. So, uh, you know, the technology behind MakerDAO it is fairly trivial to add S and P 500, you know, over collateralized by ETH, et cetera. The same escrow system, collateralization system, smart contracts, oracles that support creating a stable U.S. dollar allows you to create a stable Tesla stock, Apple stock, and give that to the entire world. There's many people around the world that just cannot access those stock. They can't access them on leverage either, of course, but they just can't buy Tesla stock for various capital control yeah, but or the, but unbanked the point, reasons. Yeah, but the point being that those people who are doing that, they have to go buy the Apple stock. Right. Well, they'll buy a synthetic. No, I mean, they buy a no, synthetic no, 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 Apple stock. No, no, no. Stock. Who, whoever's creating that, though. There's somebody has to get the Apple stock to put under as the collateral. Oh, uh, you could have – it could be cash settled, so okay, to speak. explain that. Like you could have an oracle that tracks the price of Apple stock and, um, and as long as you have uh, like 150% of, of the value of Ethereum of that Apple – you know, locked up then that's like a cash settled derivatives contract, a physically settled one, right? So you have the, that's, they're truly synthetic assets, right? That's so you're basically cool. saying you don't even, you're seeing a world where you don't even have to go buy the Apple stock. It's just like a price tracker. Yeah. You just, I mean, one person is locking up a sufficient amount of Ethereum or Bitcoin mm-hmm. worth of Apple stock. And that simulate Apple, it's just the price, right? As long as the price is very obvious and clear and there's an mm-hmm. Oracle that can track it, you're good to go. Um, now, I mean, there are some 
there are some, like, if you really want to be market neutral, you need a market maker who sort of hedges their Apple stock. Do you actually want to own the asset or just have price yeah, exposure to the asset? Yeah, because someone has to be yeah. short if someone's yep. long. Yeah, so yeah. maybe you have to access Apple. But that's great. I mean, that's like what the internet is. That's what the internet is all about. Like some mm-hmm. people that have access, allowing it to people that don't have access. I mean, the really one thing um, that's sort of surprising about the internet is if, if you look like on a market cap and, and revenue perspective, the really the greatest benefit from a consumer surplus is... Uh, is the, is basically, it used to be that if you were a upper middle class New Yorker, you had access to all this stuff that you could buy and the rest of the world didn't. And the internet allows anyone around the world to have access to that, the same stuff. Um, but not for the financial system, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're here, if you're a New York-based hedge fund or you know you have a brokerage account, you have access to all these sophisticated financial products that most of the rest of the world doesn't have. And once that's unlocked, I think the sky is the limit. Where can people go find out more if they want to learn about this stuff? Where, where do you suggest they go read, uh, whether it's books, blogs, information sources, et cetera? Yeah, I like the old uh, the old histories of how the financial system development developed. Or, I mean, they're not going to talk about Bitcoin. The, the writers are sometimes dead or they're old yep. professors. Um, but they're fascinating to get this sort of 4,000-year history and then sort of compare and contrast. So uh, Graeber's book called Debt, the first 5,000 years. It's like a classic. It's it's the book that most of the early like Wences and most of the early sort of crypto influencers who got everyone else into it uh, read and got them into it. Same with me. Um, there's a book called Money Changes Everything, which is by Yale professor, which is great. Uh, for the modern day stuff, uh, we have a research. We have a we have a Dragonfly has Dragonfly Research. It's our Medium page where we blog and and write articles about about a lot of this stuff. That'd be a great resource. It's a little little techy, but we have some stuff that's more general. Dragonfly research on Medium? Yeah, yeah. All right. Before we wrap up, most important book you've ever read? Um, I studied social theory in in college. Uh, no finance or anything like that or, or uh, CS. And uh, I loved like just sort of the early canon, like Foucault, like the works of Foucault. It's like this postmodernist mm-hmm. French philosopher. Um, very profound impact on me. It makes me think, I mean, it's, he has all sorts of politics. Um, but, uh, the most important sort of impact of what he says is like, you need to question institutions very closely and sort of layers of trust are everywhere. Like mm-hmm. implicit trust in like the psychology, like in academics and credentials and in the media and of course in the government, but we all, we all know that. Um, but there's like layers of trust and in, in institutions everywhere and sort of how the system works. And it's how the system fails. Aliens, believer, non-believer. Yeah, I studied up on this one. <laughs> um, I think obviously, how many no's do you get? You know, like a, I've gotten just two or three. The, the all time is still Josh. I'm bringing Josh Brown actually back. We're, we're going to figure <laughs> this out because he claims that ghosts are more real than aliens, which just I was like that. You're just going for the hot take. Love the science behind that one. But, uh, <laughs> law, law of large numbers. My biggest thing, I used to be very, like, I love sci-fi, love E.T. I used to be very, like, hell yeah, we're going to see some aliens. It's going to be cool. New adventure for mankind, Star Trek. Now, I recently read uh, The Three-Body Problem, this mm. three-part huge science fiction novel. Um, it's, like, the most famous one in China. And uh, it is a much darker take on aliens. Have you read it? I have not. You, I mean, if you're, you're the second person question, to tell me this, I got to go read it. Wow, only number two. It's uh, basically it's sort of this logical. Um, it 
it does a thought exercise of what happens if we actually contact aliens. And in fact, the most likely outcome is these aliens will kill us uh, because they have significantly greater technology than we do. So they'll view us like ants or people on a farm. And probably they'll be super predators just spray like some us. water. Just spray some water on the ants, right? Yeah, yeah. Or put, <laughs> Wash a, few, them away. put a few in a zoo, whatever. Um, or the second problem, and this is actually the real, like you never know. They might be nice. They might be not nice. Flip the coin. Um, the real problem, though, is sort of like it's called dark forest theory, which is that uh, they won't know much about us. And it's possible that like their rate of technology will grow less fast, uh, slower than ours. Like you never know. I, like, mm-hmm. There's periods in time where our tech developed like millions of years where we develop faster and slower in, the, in sort of race to race to being able to like, I don't know, kill other species. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, they just can't take the risk that. Even if we're like weaker than them, that will become stronger than them over time. And yeah, it's a great game theory application of aliens. And it makes me feel very sad now because I think if we do encounter aliens, it will probably be very bad. Um, But yeah, they've got to be there somewhere. I generally agree that if we come in contact in a material way, uh, we probably have a much more positive view of them than than we should. Yeah, yeah. Judging release from humans, you know, we have a pretty bad track record. <laughs> what, um, what's the one question you got for me to finish up? Oh, I didn't prep a question. I know. I that's, don't know. It's even better. How's it, how's it going? Are you, uh, <laughs> no, 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 is no, no, coronavirus no. You, hitting you, you yet in you New York? You gotta have a real question. That's my big thing. I, I, uh, my, my, half my team was in China. They've been quarantined the last month or two. Um, what is that like? Uh, it's, there's never, nothing has happened like this in all of history. Um, basically a billion people or more are quarantined. And what it means to be quarantined is you can't leave your house. Uh, there's an intricate system of government oversight mm-hmm. where uh, there's basically like neighborhood watches in most Chinese cities. And the neighborhood watches are empowered. They give you like a hall pass. You get one hall pass per family per day. And that's it. You get like an hour period where you can leave your house to go buy groceries. It's terrible. I mean... There's one, there's situations where like a husband and wife, the husband chokes, you know, on something, has just a totally, or breaks their leg and how they have to go ask their uh, neighbor to, oh, what do we? J- Joe's pulled up a meme oh, okay. of uh, the different plagues and it's plague, plague, plague from 1720, 1820, 1920, 2020, coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Corona plague. Um, so it's, uh, it, it amazes me actually how uh, little People are paying attention to it in in the U.S. because China is our number one trade part, or whatever. It's one of our largest trade partners. Even the place where it started in Wuhan, there's study abroad programs there. It's like it's this manufacturing hub of the world. So, uh, you know, it's very very weird times there. And uh, yeah, it doesn't seem to be affecting New York yet yet though. Uh, the joke that I, um, I heard is, uh, Polina, one of her friends, um, was texting her and, uh, she's going on an international trip and Polina's mm-hmm. like, are you going to wear a mask on the flight? And she said, uh, quote, I'm going to free face it. And, uh, 
when Plin asked her why, she said, I ride the J train every day. What are you talking about? There's all kinds of weird shit down there. And I think that's the, you know, while, while she was yeah, that's, saying that's it in more jest, of an indictment about the J train, though. Than, yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Like, but you're right. It's very rational, actually, for, for people to not take the subway as much, undoubtedly, or to take Ubers less well, or not to go to. I don't know why people are still going to sports games and massive crowd. That's the other thing. The first thing that happened in China. I mean, now people are in their homes. But the first thing is no public events, no all concerts, all like restaurants even are closed throughout China. You know, China, you could say what you want about them. They're pretty rational, you know. Um, and do you feel like that's where we're going to get to in the U.S.? Yeah, certainly. I mean, at least I don't know about quarantines. You never know. Mm-hmm. It's again, it's un- it was unprecedented in China, too. That's never happened yeah, yeah, yeah. In, a, in, a made, in a modern country before. But uh, yeah, I advise I tell my girlfriend and, and my employees and, and my family don't go to a major sporting event. Don't go to a con- yeah. I mean, the odds, it's very hard to account for exponential growth um, and viral growth in the human head. It's very non-humanist. So for instance, you can have a couple hundred cases in an entire state. And, uh, and that means that if there's an event over 10,000 people, the odds are there's going to be at least one person with the virus there. And these things also are not linear. One person often can infect 70, 200, you know, 200 people, right? Um, Do do we know if you get it and you don't die after like two or three weeks, are you then like immune to it in in the sense of uh, you're kind of a carrier, but you're not contagious anymore and also uh, you're going to be fine? Um, Probably, I think. I I would think, but I don't know for sure. But well, here's the the issues, which is um, uh, any virus like this mutates very often. Actually, there are some cases where they test you and your symptoms have gone away and then it reoccurs. Okay. I think there's some debate between whether you actually caught it again or it was just the sort of pattern of the virus is such that it, it ebbs and flows. Um, it's hard to say. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, the thing is, you know, the most likely outcome is this will be just one of, there's four or five strains of flu every year that we get vaccinated for. And they just reoccur every every year or two, or you know, um, and uh, uh, because so frequently. So this will just be another strain. Yeah, I mean, so you can get the get flu five. two years in a row, even if you get the vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because of how quickly they mute. It's unlikely. Like it's more likely that it'll take a few years. But if that's the case, if we're not able to eliminate it, then yeah, yeah, every few years maybe. Which brave new world. It's fucking crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, where can people find you? Uh, you on the internet? Uh, we. I'm on Twitter. It's. Uh, I actually always have to look this up. It's like alpaca. P a l p a c k a p, <laughs> like a llama, or al- actually like a like alpaca. Um, but uh, but really, you should Dragonfly uh, Research and Dragonfly Capital. If you go, it's like dcp.capital is our website, and we have a Medium page. That's where most of my more thought provoking comments are, as opposed to on Twitter. I'm not as I'm not as uh, as Twitter native as you are, unfortunately. Uh, I uh, I love Twitter just because I just let it flow, man. Whatever ideas I got, they're go- you're, you're gonna know what I'm thinking because I'm I'm posting them. Is, yeah, the post-Trump world. Yeah, yeah. Let well, it go. It, yeah, and part of it is um, it's a filter, right? Like I, I there's people who I followed for years, and I know whether I agree with them or not, whether I like their thought mm-hmm. process or not, etc. And I think that people just enjoy the authenticity of it mm-hmm. versus. Um, if I was more of a person that just like, hey, I'm going to write one blog post a month, I would never write. 
I yeah. just would procrastinate, right? So instead, it's like, hey, I'm going to tweet every day. I'm going to write a morning a letter, blah, blah, blah. Like, and it's just that repetition and consistency actually forces me to do it versus the opposite, which would just be like, eh, I'll get to it tomorrow. Eh, I'll get to it the next day. Totally. And then next thing you know, it's six months later, you haven't done anything. And from the other perspective, just more me, like the information junkie perspective, you know, we're in the venture industry. We love being on top of new things. Um, Twitter, a lot of misinformation, obviously. That's, we don't need to talk about that, of course, fake news and so forth. But uh, the other fascinating thing about Twitter is like the citizen journalism aspect of it because there's this like framework, uh, Bology uh, talks about it, um, mm-hmm. and he's big on, he's, uh, on coronavirus. It. He's killing it right now. On He's a VC, but he, was a, he started a biotech company, and he's a PhD as well. Um, and uh, he's just been going on about coronavirus uh, lately. And, uh, you know, there's this concept of uh, there's like pre there always has to be pre news and post news because mm-hmm. that's where journalists journalists get it from somewhere. Right. And they find sources and that's their specialty. But now sources are online, you know, and it's, you know, journalists let in theory are better at finding like, yeah, you know, they're, they're and evaluating tra- they're sources. trained and they can tell the story by stitching them together. Yep. Yeah. But. There's a delay, clearly. Coronavirus was probably weeks delayed for how long it took the media to figure it out um, for government reasons, all sorts of reasons. You know, we, how many people does the New York Times or CNN have in Wuhan, right? Um, so you get to sort of well, be... Well, now probably a ton. <laughs> they, I mean, those those are some brave journalists. Yeah. I mean, going into a quarantine where the entire healthcare industry has collapsed, I, so uh, I, they're gun- I'm sure they're gunning for Pulitzers. I don't mean that in a negative way. Yeah, I yeah. hope they get it. I know a Bloomberg uh, reporter who moved to Beijing um, oh. I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half ago, maybe even two years ago. I don't know. But, but like relatively recently. Um, and uh, I've seen her post a bunch online mm-hmm. about like life in Beijing with the coronavirus. And I'm just like, holy shit. Like what, you know, do you leave? Do you stay? I mean, there, there's just what do you do, right? Yep. Um, so it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. A lot of tough choices. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming to do this. This is Thank awesome. Thank you. We're going to have to do this again. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how all these different narratives play out. But uh, I appreciate you just being thoughtful and uh, taking time to share it with us. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, Simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.